This is an RNZ podcast. Kia ora and welcome to the Kim Hill Collection. In March 2017, just a couple of months after Donald Trump was inaugurated as president of the US, the TV writer and satirist Armando Iannucci appeared on Saturday morning to promote his new film, uh, The Death of Stalin. But what followed was less a promo, really, and more a musing on the role of satire in a world where the satirical impossible is unfolding before your very eyes. Super interesting. Hope you enjoy it. If you saw the UK series The Thick of It, starring Peter Capaldi as the sweary spin doctor Malcolm Tucker, you'll know the satirical genius of British writer and producer Armando Iannucci. Iannucci created Steve Coogan's hapless character, Alan Partridge. He made the feature movie In the Loop. He created the Emmy-winning HBO series Veep. And he's just made a movie called The Death of Stalin. Armando Iannucci is coming to the Auckland Writers' Festival in May. I spoke to him a day or so ago, and I said that a headline like Queen should sue Trump for libel, says Bush's ethics lawyer, indicates that it's all beyond satire now, isn't it? It is indeed. That's why I find it... When people say, oh, you're not... Are you are you sad not to be still making Veep out in America? You must have you must be missing. I kind of think no. I'm glad I'm out of it really because it's not funny what's going on at the moment. Yes, it is in a in a strange peculiar way. It's it's odd, and you can make jokes about it. But there's something deeply serious underneath it all. But uh, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure comedy is is going to sort out really. It's possibly the wrong thing to do, isn't it? To to find it well, funny. Well, I, I worry if you turn uh, if you turn Donald Trump into a kind of comedy plaything, it makes him feel safe. It makes it, you know, it becomes something that's a little bit comfortable to have around. And and I think really the job of any of us is to remind people that he's not. He's unstable. He's powerful and unstable. Um, you know, like radioactivity, um, and therefore must be treated very, very carefully. Do you think that Trump is just the the illogical conclusion of what we've seen uh, as performance politicians? Well, uh, it's the illogical conclusion of, I think, politicians narrowing their focus and behaviour more and more to the smaller and smaller section of the electorate that make the difference. Do you know what I mean? As the, the, countries, the countries are so evenly split and evenly divided. It's only a couple of thousand people here, a couple of thousand people there that make the difference between one party and another getting in. So what's happened is over the last 5, 10, 15 years, politicians have used pollsters and focus groups and um, uh, uh, they've refined their message to appeal to this smaller and smaller group of important people who will make all the difference. And as a result, they've ignored everyone else. So you've then got, you know, first 60%, then 70%, then 80% of the electorate who are completely ignored. They're just taken for granted by, by every party. 
and 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 this is what happens. You know, if people are ignored, then then they want to do something that will make sure they're heard. This is counterintuitive, is it not? I mean, we were told that the internet would be the ultimate tool of democracy, but in a way, it's. Well, it's you know, no one thing is the is the solution. It's what you do with that thing. You know, you can use a car to get from A to B comfortably, or you can use a car to run people over. You know, it's 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 what you decide to do with it. Similarly with the internet, you know, it, it's a source of knowledge. It's a source of education. Uh, it allows us to uncover facts, but it's also a place where we can publish untruths, where we can post up fake news, where we can write up uh, abuse or we can you know we can put up an alternative reality that there's no relation to what's actually going on in the real world it's it's up to us to decide what to do with it that's isn't that a bit like saying look you know people can choose to eat bad food uh, or they can choose to eat healthy food and here's a range of each and who among us will not head for the chocolate well absolutely no, i mean, i I mean, I don't have the answer. <laughs> I don't know what Damn. the answer is to this. Thank goodness I'm not a politician. You know, I'm allowed to just... I'm allowed to <laughs> express my uh, contempt and fury at, at people. But, uh, you know, I'm not standing for election, so I don't have to come up with a very coherent uh, answer to all these. I, I suppose what I do in the stuff I write and, and, and what any political comedian does is, is, is just ha- to take part in in exploring the debate and, and opening up these complexities. And, and, you know, part of the problem is people have voted as if there is a very simple solution. You know, Donald Trump comes along and says, everything's going to be wonderful. I'm going to give you something beautiful. Uh, it's going to be easy. Um, you know, and, 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 and people are lured into thinking that that's very attractive. So I suppose, you know, people, annoying people like me come along and say, actually, it's a lot more complicated than that. And let me show you how. Uh, hopefully in an amusing way. Maybe it's all your fault. Maybe. not. Maybe. No, I, I'm not sure I can be blamed for well, the, uh, we'll give it a go. the death of Donald Trump. I mean, well, maybe you made people so cynical of the establishment that you got Brexit and you got Boris and you got Nigel and you got Donald. Look, I, I respond to what I see, and, 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 and this is a, a tendency in how I think politics has been playing itself out that I've noticed for the last 10, 15 years, when we write things like The Thick of It and, and Veep, you know, we come up with the most bizarre, stupid, outrageous storylines that, in our mind, are entirely fictional. We put them out, and then we get contacted by politicians two days later saying, how on earth did you find that out? We thought we'd kept that quiet. So, you know, the number of politicians have blamed me and my ilk for being cynical about politics has been <laughs> vastly outnumbered by the number of politicians who've come up to me quietly and said, if anything, in real life, it's an awful lot worse. So, so all, all I'm doing is responding to what I see, really. You've said that we're now living on a planet of separatists and had, you had a very good idea. You said that somebody should invent an app which hooks you up with people of different political opinions. <laughs> well, yes, I mean, we're just, talking, we're just talking about the internet. I mean, what we tend to do now is we, we, we surround ourselves by yeah. like-minded people. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. We, we, we friend people who have the same tastes, the same interests. And what's happening now, you know, across campuses and in sort of public debate, if somebody says something 
but it's different from what you believe, the tendency now is for us to say, well, I don't want to talk to you. You know, you believe something differently and that offends me, so I'm not going to engage with you. And, and that's what's been happening more and more. We, we retreat to these pockets of safety where we'll only talk to people who will reassure us that our opinion is right. And we won't engage with anyone who has a different opinion. Um, and I think that's part of the problem, is that we're not. And we see it, we see it in the UK. You know, we have this pretty evenly divided country in the United Kingdom where you know, just over 50% voted for Brexit and just under 50% voted to remain in the European Union. And we, we've, 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 we've labelled each other as, as the enemy. So we've labelled anyone who voted for Brexit as being racist and xenophobic, and we've labelled anyone who voted to remain as being wishy-washy liberal moaner. And actually, the truth is a lot more complicated than that. And if only we actually try to engage in a proper conversation with those who disagree with us, I think we'd, we'd come to an under, uh, you know, the chances are we, we'd increase the chance of, of us coming to some sort of understanding of what it is that is making certain people vote a certain way. The issue of offence is, yeah. is a real one now, and your swearing consultant, Ian Martin, <laughs> yeah. who then joined your writing team, but it's such a great uh, job description, I'll keep yeah. it. He said <laughs> that people are taking such offence now that you just, you, 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 it's very hard to be funny or to speak the truth. And he gave the example of how he gave somebody a line, you need to behave like a Hutu. And that was in character. But yeah. somebody said, oh, you think genocide is funny? Please explain. Yes. I mean, my point of view is always, what is wrong with being offended? You're not being injured. You're not being physically attacked. Um, if you have an o o opposite point of view, then if you really believe it, you, you must believe it strongly enough that it won't be harmed by hearing someone say something that makes fun of that point of view. Now, I'm not talking about trolling or bullying or, do you know what I mean, or name-calling. I, I, I'm just saying if we're not prepared to be offended, then really we're not prepared to allow our own beliefs and our own opinions to... to to stand up to uh, analysis and to stand up to being probed, really. I, I, I think it's, you know, I think there's a danger of it being a, <clears throat> a sort of cowardly way out by saying, oh, uh, that, that might offend someone. Mm. That's a whisker away, of course. I'm not suggesting you're saying this, but that is a whisker away. Maybe you are saying this. is a whisker away from saying, you know, PC gone mad. Well, I don't think it's that. I just think it's... I, I think there is a danger that we we shut ourselves off from other points of view. Um, you know, there was a, there was an outcry when... I think it was... Was it Lana Sherman wrote, wrote... There was a, a lecture... Um, there, was a, there was a writer who got into a lot of trouble for saying that actually novelists don't have to come from the same background as the world that they're describing in a novel. And she got into an awful lot of trouble. Might have been Hilary Mantel, was it? That's right, yeah. Right. And, and, and I'm thinking, well, that's exactly right. I mean, Shakespeare wrote about 
you know, Shakespeare didn't have to grow up in Venice to write The Merchant of Venice. He didn't have to, we, you didn't have to grow up in the Mafia in order to write The Sopranos. The whole act of having an imagination is that it allows us to imagine another person and another set of beliefs as if they are our own. Um, it's a connecting device. It's not. It's not a device that is there to isolate you and shut you off. It's. It's. A, it's. It's. It's a gift we all have that allows us to ex- try and experience thought and life through the eyes of someone else. Um, and, and 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 it does concern me that the whole well, don't say that because someone might be offended is is really a, a retreat from that. Um, you know, can I only write about and make comedy about Scottish Italians who grew up in Glasgow and then moved to London? I mean, it'd be a very small, limited, niche set of programmes I'd be making if, if, that's the, if that's the sole audience that I, I could write for. Good story, though. Well, it's one good story, but it's when <laughs> I come to write the second series <laughs> that people would say, can't you write something else now? <laughs> Um, famously, Veep um, is an entirely British-made yeah. series for yeah. American television, yes. which yes. is a huge credit to you. I think the Americans tried to make their own, the ABC tried to make their own, and it was dull, dull, dull. It's very interesting yes. that the Americans like Brits like you and John Oliver taking yeah. it to the man, as it were. Would it operate in the other direction? Uh, oh, well, we have a huge amount of respect for American uh, comedians and American writing. And yeah, 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 yeah. But could yeah, they go to yeah. Britain and take the pee out of all your idiosyncrasies? Well, do you know what? <clears throat> I found my experience of America was it was a very generous and open country. Um, you know, despite the image that Donald Trump protect, projects of it being a isolationist and um, sealed off entity, that's not the America I knew... I was nervous when we went out to do Veep. Um, uh, um, uh, yeah, you're right. We were an entirely British team, British directors, British writers. I was British. We rehearsed it in London. Uh, I edited it in London. It was a sort of British production, other than the fact it was an American cast and we shot it out in America. Um, I was nervous because I did think, what will Americans say? How dare you come over here and make fun of our system and tell us what's wrong with it? But if anything, they were really generous. They, they invited us. They were, they were happy to show us around Washington and the White House and the vice president's office. And a lot of them said afterwards it maybe needed someone who came from outside that environment. Because in America, you grew up in a Republican household or a Democrat household. You grew up in a, a red state or a blue state. It's, it's very tribal. And it needed someone to come from outside that whole system of labels and and look at the whole entity of how politics works from an objective point of view and and um, you're absolutely right i have no idea if americans came to the uk or came to new zealand and and said hey you're funny i'll tell you what's funny about you lot uh, you'd probably be annoyed um so i was actually um genuinely surprised and and heartened by how welcoming they were. It is a very generous country. They just want good stuff. That's, that's the thing with American television, people like HBO. They, want, they don't care where it's coming from as long as it's the, the sort of quality that they're after. 
they're, they're happy to they're happy to and that is the American story you know the um, the Statue of Liberty and the Ellis Island and you know it's it's the, the immigrant story um, so I wouldn't I wouldn't see the the world that Donald, the image that Donald Trump projects as as true America really. I'm talking to Armando Iannucci, who is the creator of The Thick of It and In the Loop, and uh, Steve Coogan's hapless character, Alan Partridge, as well as Veep. Uh, you gave a very rousing speech in 2015 in the annual McTaggart Lecture, calling for an industry-wide defence of the BBC and British programme makers. This was at a time when your government was looking at examining the BBC and what it was doing. Yeah. Uh, since then, are you more confident that the BBC is not going to be eviscerated? Well, it's um, it you know it's always uh, under threat. The the uh, particular uh, the particular threat that I was talking about was every ten years it gets its charter renewed by the government of the day, and the charter was coming up for renewal, and the government of the day was talking about pruning it back a bit, um, reining it in, shutting down certain services. And my argument was the BBC is, is a brand that is recognised throughout the world. And um, any other industry that had that kind of international reach, you know, governments would be sh shouting to the rafters about it. I, I, I think I said, you know, if it, if it was a weapon system, the government would half the cabinet would be on a plane out to Saudi Arabia to sell it to them, um, but 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 somehow because it's it's a state, national run broadcaster, um, and because we had a conservative government, it, it didn't quite fit their view of how free markets work. Um, well, it's not only really that, is it? I mean, it's that the government perceives it as a as a bastion of pinko liberalism. Well, in fact, you know, whenever there's a, a left-wing government in power, they're always complaining about the BBC being right-wing. So it must be doing something right if it's... Uh, we, get, we go back to that word offence, if it's offending everyone equally. Actually, um, I think you, you quit the BBC your, earlier in your career when you were a, a, a radio host. Did yeah. you not quit when the Bishop of Oxford objected to a joke? <laughs> he, he objected to a joke, but it was on Radio 1, which was like, the you know, the main youth music station. Um, and I thought, what is the Bishop of Oxford doing? A, listening to Radio 1, and then B, writing in to complain about it. Um, I was thinking of leaving anyway. I was going to go freelance because Alan Partridge and a few other projects were beginning to take off and there was the offer of doing them for television. So I was, I was thinking, I was a staff producer at the BBC at the time, a radio producer, and I was thinking of leaving anyway. So once the Bishop of Oxford started complaining about late-night jokes, uh, for young people, uh, I thought I'll take that as my cue to go. And so, what was the joke? I'm trying to remember. I knew it was about... I remember it was about the crucifixion. It was... Uh, other than that, I can't remember. I, I remember it being very funny. <laughs> right. We'll have to make it up. I'll invite the listeners to send in yeah. a series of very funny jokes about the crucifixion, see if oh, we can approximate it. Off you go. Right. <laughs> Um, you, you, can read, you can read them out tomorrow. I, talking about um, bishops and religion, um, I don't know where I read this. There was a New Yorker profile of you. Maybe it was in there that you toyed with uh, a priest, toyed with a yes, priesthood I, for a while. I, 
I grew up uh, in a Catholic family, and I went to a, a school, uh, a sort of Catholic primary school, and a, at a Catholic-run, Jesuit-run secondary school. So I suppose Catholicism was... About, and I'm kind of fascinated more by, I suppose, theology and spirituality. I mean, you know, I'm interested in how people... I'm interested in faith. You know, I don't... I'm not. I, I'm not someone who wants to mock people because they're religious. What I don't like is when people try and ram their religious views down you and want you to behave differently because of religion. I, I, I get very hyped up about that. But I, I'm, I, you know, I, I, I see a value in in religious. I'm not religious myself now, but I, I, I see, I see why there is that instinct. In us, and there always has been. Um, you know, it's partly a, a sense of mystery and a sense of wonder, and it's also a sense of how can we improve ourselves and improve others, really. I can't, um, when you were writing Veep, I can't remember, and uh, maybe my memory is faulty, I can't remember many religious jokes in that. Is that, a, you can't do that no, in America? I suppose, some, I suppose some come up, but I can't. I, can't, I mean, I'm not obsessed by religion. We don't try and get no, it. No, 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 no. But I was wondering yeah. if America was a particularly hard market to, to do religious oh, jokes. I see. Well, I mean, uh, we're kind of blessed in a way in that we'd make the show for HBO um, and, and their, you know, questions of language and uh, content are slightly different from the mainstream, the main networks. You know, they don't take commercials. They're a subscription channel. Um that their audience are expecting something a little bit, I don't know, edgier or, you know, so there isn't really... I, I can't think of anything that we wrote where somebody came back to us and said, no, you can't say that. Um, so, and that was kind of... That was liberating in a way uh, in that uh, it, it, it meant that we weren't trying to... We weren't trying to dilute anything in, in our writing. I was thinking of... of religion when um, I was reading uh, some of your commentary on Tony Blair yeah. uh, in 2004 and it was a year after the invasion of Iraq yeah. and he was defending his decision to invade and yeah. he said, do I know I'm right? Judgments aren't the same as facts. Instinct is not science. I only know what I believe. Yes. Now I find that quite frightening. I only know what I believe. Because it's saying that actually your hunch is actually more real than the truth. Uh, so, I mean, Trump hasn't got a monopoly on, on alt on, facts on, and post-truth. No. You know, and I don't mind. I, I said I quite value faith in, in the individuals. But, you know, if you're in a position of responsibility, it's your duty to examine the facts and make a decision on the facts. It's also what people have been doing for 3,000 years. It's how we, we operate. You know, we gather evidence, we draw a conclusion, and on the basis of that conclusion, we act. If you're going to put people in harm's way, which was my argument, if you're going to put people in harm's way, you better make bloody sure you know your facts and you've got this absolutely right before you go ahead. So to me, that was a terrible indictment of the Iraq War because it was based on, I only know what I believe, so it was based on belief rather than knowledge. Um, and when you have politicians operating through their belief, you've now got a maverick politician in the White House whose belief system 
there's no relation to reality. So he believes that Obama is bugging him, you know, through his microwave system, and and, <laughs> and there is no evidence to support this view. Um, uh, but he goes on saying it, and and he kind of operates on the assumption that if he keeps on saying it, it will become a kind of solid fact that people will. You know, we'll hear it often enough that it will enter into our, you know, it will lodge in our brains, and we won't be able to shake it away. We'll start thinking that it must be true. Well, apparently that's how it works. And the more often other people say it is not true that Obama bugged Trump, people just hear Obama bugged Trump. Obama bugged Trump. Yes, that's right. And it worked in his campaign. You know, the more he said Hillary is corrupt, oh, all these emails, people just thought, oh dear, that sounds dreadful. Uh, can vote for her, um, even though you know we now have a president who only six or seven weeks into his presidency has been investigated for ties with a foreign power, which is it's kind of worse than Watergate. But you know Nixon, it took Nixon six or seven years to get to Watergate, taking Trump six or seven weeks to get to that stage. Mm. Um, you've I don't know whether it's released yet. You made a, a movie. Um... Uh, about Stalin, the death of uh, Stalin. We're just finishing it now. It's all in the can. We're just doing the music, and it'll be released, um, I, I think, in the UK and America in September, and then um, internationally uh, not long after. Yes, yeah, it's called The Death of Stalin, and it's a comedy. It's based on <laughs> yeah, events. that's funny. Okay. It, yeah, it's based on actual events surrounding the death of Stalin and the power struggle that went on in the Kremlin in the ten or so days after he died. It's really what ha- it's all about what happens when a man who has terrorized a country dies. You know, does the terror still survive? Uh, 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 and it's and it's really about it's what we were talking about. It's it's about people trying to change the narrative and and tell everyone. All the things that you believed for the last 20 years, can you now not believe them anymore? Can you believe something different now? And as a classical mu- music buff, you're having fun with Shostakovich, I imagine, are you? Well, uh, yeah, we've got a composer, Chris Willis, who, who actually does all the music for Veep, and he's done an amazing musical score for the film, which is in a very sort of Shostakovich style. So it's very much in the style of the, of the composers who had to work under Stalin and who actually... Shostakovich, you know, he wrote an opera that Stalin didn't like, and Shostakovich then spent the next three or four years dreading the knock on the door in the middle of the night, thinking he'd be taken off to the gulag just because Stalin didn't like his opera. That's the sort of world um, that whole society had to live with for 20, 30 years. Not many jokes going on about Stalin at that time. Not many jokes going on about Stalin. But uh, a lot of the comedy comes really from people trying to hide things that they've said and then worrying that something that they might have done or said might be picked up by someone else. Um, and, but it's, a lot of it is based on true, true events. I mean, the, 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 the truth is Stalin died because he terrified his staff so much and he told his guards never, ever to uh, knock on his door or interrupt him. That, that when he collapsed and had a stroke, the guards outside were too terrified when he didn't appear in the morning, too terrified to knock on the door and ask if he was all right. So he was just left alone all day. He, he, it, was his own, it was his own act of 
terrorising his staff that actually led to his own death. That's Armando Iannucci, and he's appearing at an early event in the Auckland Writers' Festival Saturday, April 29th.